Welcome to Cura Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. And we are at Health 2021 in Boston, our second time. Wow. We have, it is a wow, John. It's the second, an, I would say annual, but we Didn't skipped Didn't happen the year. last year. No, that COVID, <laughs> COVID thing. But it's the second time that we've done a series of high-profile, high-pressure interviews. Now, it's a live event, so if you well, hear any... Our current guest is not high-profile. How does he fit in? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, John, I'm John Driscoll for the CEO of CareCentrics. We are delighted to be at Health with all of the ambient noise in the background, which we are not faking. There are thousands of people here talking about the cutting-edge things in healthcare, <laughs> COVID, what happens after COVID, the health inequities, pharma services, pharma exploration. Who is our first victim this morning? Well, David? John, our first victim, he may not be high profile, but he's a very precise guy because he is Mark Klein from the Precision Medicine Group. And I think we're going to kick off and say welcome, Mark, first of all, in case you were wondering if you're welcome or not, you are. Thank you. Thank you. I would say, I would not say I'm not high profile. I'm saying, would say I'm no profile. No profile? Yeah. Well, nice. that's sort of what, I mean, precision medicine, huh? Now, but just to give us some background, Mark, how many companies have you founded and sold in the last, like, three or four years? <laughs> well, first, let's stretch that out to more like the last 20. But uh, three different companies. Actually, four. So, um, Aren't you the math guy? You're supposed to kind of keep track of the companies you start and sell. Well, what happens is when you've been doing it this long, dementia does start to take <laughs> its toll. Well, we're here to talk today about this precision medical group thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Now, now, honestly, hasn't precision medicine, the, hasn't, hasn't the arrival of precision medicine been announced for the last 30 years? Well, you could say that. In, 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 in some respects, precision medicine, uh, before it was called precision medicine, there were examples of using a biological marker as a surrogate to predict whether a patient would respond to a particular drug. So maybe the best example of that is uh, LDL mm -hmm. as being the fun, you know, as an indicator of heart disease that led to the development of the statins. Um, or an even maybe better example Which is, is probably the most dramatic impact of medicine across the largest number of people ever by you know, sort of in the history of drug development in terms of lowering the risk of cardiac, cardiac arrest and, and cardiac decline. I Great mean, it point. Just, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's massive. But, I mean, dude, that was like 50 years ago, and we still don't have very precise medicine. So what are we talking about here? Well, what we're, so then that's one example. A second example, which has a bit more precision uh, and just as massive an impact, was CD4 cell counts with HIV. That was really the beginning of turning AIDS uh, into a chronic disease. Yeah. And so both of those were examples of identifying some surrogate biological marker and then being able to build a drug around it. <clears throat> because when you can do that, the difference is it fundamentally changes the clinical trial design. So now instead of just randomly enrolling patients and then... Um, and then allocating a certain number of patients the drug and a certain number of patients the alternative or a placebo, you're now recruiting patients based on that marker. Do you have high LDL or in today's world, do you have a gene mutation? And if you can then recruit patients that are, have, you've already determined are more likely to respond, you can identify whether you have an effective drug with much smaller patient cohorts. And that allows you to shrink 
the time and cost of drug development. And that's what we're seeing in this kind of new age of precision medicine. Frankly, I think it's the biggest change in the life science industry since, frankly, since 1962 when they established randomized controlled trials as the necessary hurdle for drug approval. Thereby making it slower and more difficult to get any drugs approved. Well, and also creating some scientific basis for knowing whether something works. So how is precision medicine different from personalized medicine? Or is it two ways of saying the same thing? It's almost, yes, it's two ways of saying the same thing. What it it turned out was that when, um, when, when we were using the term personalized medicine, it just turned out that doctors didn't like to be told that they didn't treat their patients personally. And... On the other hand, when... You offended doctors, Mark? I mean, doctors being offended, really, that's that's why we changed the terms? Well, it affected adoption. As you know from your friend Dan Kahneman, um, how you... Frame. Yeah, how you frame things is very important. And when physicians saw that there was an opportunity to use precision... There was nothing threatening about that. When they were told, you have to treat your patients on a personalized basis, they said, well, I'm doing that. John, I thought you were more of an Amos Tversky guy. Uh, Amos Tversky and Dan Kahneman are the famous Israeli-American economists who won the Nobel Prize for Behavioral Economics. And both of my colleagues are sort of shame-dropping, name-dropping references that the average healthcare person may not know, but actually the behavioral economics, the importance of framing an argument when you want to drive actual change in behavior is actually, to Mark's point, I'm not going to give you any credit, David, one of the one of the biggest challenges in healthcare is getting people to do the things we know they want to do. And I think of that as a patient problem, but you're absolutely right. If the docs aren't going to prescribe, but, but Mark, seriously, you know, whether it's Genzyme or Genentech or Biogen, you know, it feels like biotech companies have systematically, forget even big pharma, oversold the revolution in front of us, which has always felt a little bit more incremental than, than, sort, of, than, than, than sort of system change. And yet, you know, your point about personalization and, and, and leveraging data, I mean, why isn't it happening faster? Okay, good points. Um, I, will, I want to address your withering assault on precision medicine very directly. Um, You're up for it. The big change that happened, it, it has been incremental, but the, 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 you could ask the question, well, you just gave these examples of Lipitor and, and HIV. So this has been around a long time. Why are you calling it precision medicine suddenly? Big, You're kind of struggling. You have to go back to 1962. I mean, did it, anything it, happen it, after the First World War? Well, the yeah. biggest thing that happened that has really fundamentally changed everything was the human mapping of the human genome. And so one, the mapping of the human genome created an explosion, basically the mapping of the software code of, you know, the humanity has created an explosion in academia in identifying all of these biomarkers and uh, particularly genetic-based biomarkers. And that's what was the difference. That in itself is incremental because that's still ongoing. But what that, it's one of the great examples of public-private um, power. And the, because that investment that we made has created an explosion of biomarkers, which has now led to drug development that is now compressing. 
both in time and cost. What and about these massive timelines and all these well, tens John, of let's, billions let's, of dollars? Let's talk about Operation Warp Speed, right? Because I think when uh, COVID hit and we were looking at what was going to happen. I want to hear, hear, hear the story about drugs. You get, we've already got the vaccines are here, but the drugs are late. Yeah, but how, yeah, but, yeah that, exactly. But the vaccine got here quickly, okay? And, and, and everybody, big experts like, you know, John over here would say, oh, yeah, I'm vaccine is going to take, you know, takes five years at least to develop a vaccine, so on and so forth. And boom, all of a sudden they five, did it fast. Five years to never. I mean, so, the, va- the, the, so, average, the average vaccine right. development took like eight years, and we still don't have a, a, a vaccine for AIDS. I was really concerned that we wouldn't have one. Right. No, it's, so fi- it's truly so five revolutionary. Months, five months later, we have one because there was a focus on it. Now, how come, you know, it was 1962. Okay, that goes way back. I mean, everything's You're relative, John. But You're that old. <laughs> so... Thalidomide, okay. Is there clinical trials coming out of that? Now, how come we can't make therapeutics go so fast? Maybe we can. Well, we, uh, there are two, two comments there. Project Warp Speed is an incredible success, but it's not necessarily a model for the industry because what Project Warp Speed fundamentally was was a financing of the manufacturing process. That's why it was, uh, the process was so accelerated. The doing vaccine testing does not take a long time, uh, particularly in a, with an mRNA model. What takes a long time is finding out the results, which is in, what any rational pharmaceutical company would do, finding out the results and then scaling up manufacturing. You're not going to make the multi-billion dollar manufacturing bet in advance. What the U.S. government did was they said, we'll pay for that. We'll, Got it. we'll take the risk on manufacturing so everybody could go you know, full out, and then if it did work, the manufacturing would be there, and that's exactly what happened. So that's not necessarily an example of. But precision. I want, to, but I don't want to lose your point earlier, Mark, because if it's true that precision can shrink and simplify drug development, yeah, that's kind of a revolutionary thing, Correct. particularly given all these fat cat pharma executives who claim it costs an infinite amount of money, which is why they should get infinite margins and why one out of four people can't afford their drugs in America. I mean, uh, that's, that, that potentially undermines that argument completely. But also creates potential, like cancer could be a chronic condition. I mean, these are, that, that's a big claim. What sits beneath, underneath that hypothesis or, or maybe fact if, it, if it's changing that quickly? Well, that, that is where we're heading. Let's take hemophilia. There's three products in development. We're working on, we're supporting the development of one of those for gene therapy in hemophilia. Wow. One of these is going to work and maybe multiple ones. And that, for those who don't know hemophilia, is, it, it's, it's a, a, a bleeding disease effectively that is, it is from a genetic mutation. And it, these hemophiliacs need a uh, factor uh, to stabilize themselves and they are extremely expensive. A, a, a hemophilia patient could cost anywhere between five to $15 million a year personally. Uh, we have the way to keep ways to keep them alive. It is extremely expensive and invasive. That's that would be revolution. That's a game changer, a, Mark. If it actually is that is that on the horizon? That is on the horizon. Um, the and these these studies are not going to take a long time because it's very clear if it works. Now you have there's a duration effect, but even if these um, hemophilia gene therapy approaches just result in not having to take factor which is the current treatment, for one or two or three years. The implications are massive in terms of 
quality of life for the patient no, well, and, yeah, and, it, yeah, and the, cost. the cost thing. It is a huge lifestyle. I guess, win. I guess, John, you know, if you're starting and you're saying, well, it's 10 or $15 million a year now, I think it could be less, right? But the problem with gene therapy, it may come out, it might be $3 million, which is less than 10 or 15, but most diseases aren't that much. And then there's concerns about gene therapy, you know, whether it causes cancer. So are we going to actually be, is there's going to be like nuclear fusion, you know, we're, we're always just a little bit over the horizon for the, uh, you know, cheap energy, too cheap to, you know, endless energy. You bringing back nuclear again? I thought we were talking, this is a healthcare conversation. I am talking David. about it. It's the Let's same thing. Let's forget about it. It's, it's the new fusion. I want to hear the hemophilia. You, you just fell for all that, new, that fusion stuff. It's just over the horizon, look, John. Just look like at, think hydrogen. Now, getting back to healthcare. So there are, there's sort of two ways to think about this precision medicine's benefits. One is the sort of game-changing examples where chronic diseases are cured or, tur or turned into diseases that are treated much more effectively at much lower cost. Um, another way to think about it is improved treatment like Zalcori, the Pfizer lung cancer drug. This, is, this was actually one of the landmark examples of precision medicine, of which there will be many, of which there are hundreds now in development. But that was an example of a product that would never have been approved in the traditional model. If you had given Zalcori to lung cancer patients um, randomly, just, just lung cancer patients, which is what its indication was, it would have shown a 5% response rate. And the FDA would, have fit not, would not have approved it. However, if you give Zalcori to those patients that have the ALK mutation, you have a 40% response rate or wow. 35% response rate. And it's a really powerful drug. And it turns out that those the patients that have that mutation are disproportionately non-smoking women that have lung cancer. So a completely different presentation. So you get so what, what you have is a classic example of a product that ends up treating a disease that is called lung cancer, but is actually a subset linked to that gene mutation. So, no, go ahead, John. I don't so want to cut I, off your well, line of well, questioning. I, I just am in, like if 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 this is so clear, what exactly do you do in this process? What is your current company, Precision Medical Group? actually do to kind of accelerate, impair, or overcharge pharma companies from actually making progress? So if you're going to pursue this type of drug development approach, you need a very different infrastructure than you would typically find in the typical research services CRO company. Typically a clinical research organization, which are the typical organizations that big pharma uses to correct. actually farm out the clinical trials for phase one, to phase two, three, all of the stuff in that trial thing. Do they still pretty much outsource that to CRO organizations? They do. Most clinical trials or many clinical trials, about half of all drug development is outsourced to specialty companies like ourselves. The traditional companies in this space were essentially labor-driven um, data collection organizations that would go out and train sites um, that will be involved in treating the patients and then collect all of the information and then analyze the information and then provide that back to the drug company. Drug companies are really good at understanding how to develop drugs. They tend not to have internal expertise on diagnostics. And if you're going to use a precision medicine approach, it means that you've identified some biological marker that you think can predict response, potentially, 
And then you need to turn that into a diagnostic test that you incorporate into the clinical trial so that you're, you're ruling patients in or out versus these various biomarker tests. So what we do at Precision is we have an entire infrastructure and capability that's in the industry is called translational sciences that sources biospecimens, conducts the testing to validate the hypothesis of the biomarker, turns the biomarker into a diagnostic test, processes the samples in the clinical trials, and then designs and runs the clinical trial to integrate the biomarker into it. Well, last question. So it's been two years since the last health conference, and whether it's two years or not for next time, we don't know, but will we be saying, singing more or less the same tune in two years, or is there going to be something dramatically that changes in that time frame? I think we're going to be singing that tune louder. I think we're going to be seeing a world where increasingly um, there's less waste, um, meaning there's less treatments prescribed by doctors that don't work. There's more treatments that work at higher cost because I think we're moving to a world where these types of diseases will reduce cost by reducing the amount of treatment that's necessary over time, but prices will probably be high, higher per prescription. Oh, I, I mean, I've given you a hard time, Mark, but it is really am amazing what you're doing. You know, I had a sister who died of cystic fibrosis, and mm. when she died in the 60s, um, that what she was suffering from now is a chronic condition, and, and, and my net niece, uh, uh, my, my cousin, rather, has a, has a son who's got cystic fibrosis, and he will live until old age based on the biologics that have been created in a precise way to solve that crippling disease. And so you're, what you're doing is completely game-changing. And I don't think we should, we should uh, you know, underestimate the power of the slow, consistent movement towards precision medicine. But we can't pay the prices that, that, that pharma is charging. But that's for a different podcast. Right. Great. Well, we always like the different podcast, John, if this one isn't any good. And in any case, uh, Mark Klein, uh, CEO, co-founder of Precision Medicine Group. It's been a pleasure having you here today on the Care Talk podcast at Health 2021. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. Mark, thanks for joining us. And Thank please you. subscribe on your favorite service.